They are at both tables outside. And uh, go ahead and grab those if you don't already have one or find someone around you who looks young and spry and they'll happily get one for you. You can always uh, know people who get spoiled um, teaching. And I didn't do a ton of teaching, but you get used to having a desk, um, which is nice because then you can have stacks of papers, stacks of books, and your coffee cup. My coffee cup is so lonely over there. I uh, wish we had someone to uh, bring the giant desk here and then I would feel better. But uh, um, I don't know if you uh, remember, <laughs> remember um, when, uh, uh, past, when Pastor Joshua got here in different styles, didn't love uh, Pastor John's giant pulpit. Do you guys remember Pastor John's giant pulpit? It was actually, um, if you know anything about Civil War history, the Merrimack and the Monitor, right, the ironclad ships, that pulpit was a lot like an ironclad ship. It was giant, but had plenty of room for lots of books and coffees. This, I get to see you. So Pastor John was a big man. And uh, I am not, so this works better. We're going to get started our equipping hour series, and uh, am thankful uh, for the time that we get uh, to be here together. This uh, series I have titled "In Him," and it is about the blessings we have in Christ Jesus. It's about it's a series, really, that's going to be about salvation. It's hopefully going to be. Uh, about your heart being encouraged, about how generous God is to you. And so hopefully you're going to be encouraged. Your heart's going to be warmed. I trust by God's grace and what we're praying is that you realize how gracious God is, um, that your heart worships more, and that you have more confidence that you have more confidence um, when you think about yourself before God in his holiness, in his righteousness, and you are able to enjoy him because of God's blessings to you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we're tempted to focus on what we have done or maybe what we haven't done. And we're sometimes tempted to focus on whether we've had a good week or a bad week. And how comfortable am I with God now, and the focus becomes so much of ourselves instead of Christ. So this series, I don't really know how long it's going to go. Um, probably at some point you might get tired of it and ask me to be done, and then I'll stop. And, uh, um, but while this series is ongoing, we've got a couple books um, that you may enjoy reading. So we're not giving a signed reading, but I'm going to give you a couple uh, book recommendations you may enjoy. And they're at two different levels. Um, one is a little bit more accessible and smaller. It's called Who Am I? Identity in Christ by Jerry Bridges. And so if you've ever read anything by Jerry Bridges, you know how encouraging of a uh, writer he is. It's called Who Am I? It's a small book. You can get it for about $6. It'll be an easy, encouraging read. There's another book that's a little bit bigger called Complete in Him by Michael Barrett. And uh, that's a bigger book, but also an accessible book, just more of a leisurely read. So who Am I by Jerry Bridges or Complete in Him by Michael Barrett? This is, these are also working over topics that you would find in any good systematic theology, too. So if you have systematic theology by Wayne Grudem, um, by, by, by the uh, faculty of the Master Seminary, 
John Frame, any number of systematic theologies, each of those is going to have chapters on the kinds of topics we're going to be covering. I'm going to do a lot of, of just copying what they've written, but I know that not all of you have read what they've written, and all of you aren't using your weeks to read this kind of thing, but I'm blessed to do that. So I'm just going to give a fair plagiarism warning right now um, that sometimes I'm just going to take outlines from it. I'm going to be trying to tell you if it is an exact quote, um, but I'm going to be uh, stealing a lot. So it's not really stealing if I tell you it's using resources. So no one published this and put my name with it because then I'm going to get sued. Okay. So we're going to start off by, um, so, so the series is called In Him, and we're going to start off, and it's a little tricky to know where to start, because uh, this topic of being in him, or we could use the phrase being united with Christ or union with Christ, finds itself in lots of different places when you look at a table of contents. So in some books, it's the fourth chapter or the fifth chapter. Some books, like in Grudem's Systematic Theology, Union with Christ is put at the end. In other books, he opens with it. So, so this idea of being in him, being, being united with Christ, is such a big concept that um, we could really probably go to it at any point. And so we're going to keep circling back to it. But I, I thought it would, it, it would be neat to open with. So if you have your notes. In a few minutes, we're going to read some big quotes there uh, about how broad this topic is. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about what does, um, well, first of all, I want to pray, and then we'll start talking. What does this phrase union, what does this word union mean? What does union with Christ mean? And then we'll explore. Yeah? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful um, for how gracious you are. We exalt you uh, you have made yourself known. Um, we would know things about you from what you've made. We would know your power. We would see your, your, your wisdom. We would see um, how, how creative you are, Lord. But unless you had made yourself known, we'd never know the extent of your grace and your, your mercy, compassion, your loving kindness. And so, Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known and uh, we praise you for how you made humans. And you made humans uh, not to be uh, isolated individuals, but you made us to be represented. And because of that, uh, really, that gift of being represented, although the consequences are tremendous of being represented in Adam, there's also this incredible privilege of being represented in Christ, of being unified with Christ. Father, I pray that this uh, series, as we begin together, uh, it would be beneficial, it would be fruitful, and uh, Lord, may it ultimately uh, lead to lots of our rejoicing, lots of understanding what it means to be human. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's uh, uh, first talk. Now, I'm hoping as the series goes to be uh, involving all of you more, and so um, um, it is helpful as far as involvement for you to be sitting up front, although I know that you don't want to sit too close to someone, but uh, and that's not normally a problem during equipping hour. What does this word union mean? What does the word union mean? Does someone just want to toss out? We're talking about union with Christ, but just let's just talk about the word union. Or maybe what do you think of when you hear the word union? 
Yes, Ed, you have to speak loud. United, okay, so union, right, has the word, has the idea of there of being united, united, of being joined, of two separate things being joined together. Um, we can think about union, an example of union is marriage, right? Marriage, when two people become one, is the most obvious example of union. Um, that word is also used, though, in a, another common way. What's another example of union? Maybe you're thinking of labor unions, right? You probably are, because who isn't, right? So you may have heard of the news about like Amazon workers wanting to unionize or Starbucks workers. And so labor unions are another way that we often use this word, right? When teachers union. So they come together to accomplish more, to, be, to get more done together, to be represented than they would by themselves. Now... Theologically, this is a huge topic in Scripture. It's a huge topic in the New Testament. If you've read through the Gospel of John or the Epistles of John, this union language is abundant. Just one example is 1 John 4.13. I'm just going to read this one to you. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. That, that, that's union language. Abiding in God and God abiding in us. That there's this union with God because he's given up his spirit. And we'll, we'll look at that verse more later. But probably most of all, we see this union language in Paul's epistles. Uh, approximately 160 times, there's some kind of use of the phrase in him or in Christ or in Christ Jesus or in the Lord. So 160 times. One example is this is in uh, Colossians 1:27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you. And that's that kind of union language we are talking about. Christ in you and then he says the hope of glory. So when you start uh, uh, looking for how Paul uses this term, and if you're not currently reading anywhere in Scripture, you could start in, in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, I know some of you are memorizing it. There's a ton of this language of being in him. Um, or you could just read through Paul's, Paul's epistles. And it could be, if you're not already reading something in Scripture, it would be really fruitful as we look at this series. Just make a list of all of that language. So if you're not already reading something, start in Romans, work your way through, and make a list of all the references of, of, of Christ being in you or you being in Christ. So as you see how often this word is used, um, you see how important it is to, uh, I don't know what's going on back there, but you see how important of a phrase th this is. Now, if you think about this, 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 this phrase, and I just wanted to have an illustration of it, this, and when you're reading through Paul, he says, in Christ, so many times, it's almost like participating in something that you don't fully get. So, like, for example, imagine I come back from a trip to London, and I loved my time in London. And I keep saying to you, in London, right? In London, um, there's a great 
subway, or in London, the palace was really impressive, or in London, the tea is just fantastic. In London, I saw this great tower where they used to kill people, right? So in London, if I just keep talking about in London, eventually, you're going to get a sense of that place from the stories, right? In London, in London, in London, probably from someone who's actually been there. You might get a sense of it, but you don't feel like you really know the city, right? Because you haven't been there. The more I talk about London, though, the more I say in London, the better sense you're going to get. But that's not... So you might get a sense of its grandness, of, of, of how much I enjoyed it, of the scope. But it's not your city, right? It's, it's not your London until you spent time there. And then you had an amazing week there. And now when you say in London, you're like one of those people on the inside track who, who get how awesome being in London is. Well, being in him is infinitely better than being in London. Being in Christ is infinitely better. Now, I want us to, to tweak that analogy a little bit. And let's talk about being in a palace, okay? Now, I might say in the palace, and that might be great to learn about the palace, but it's not your palace. I might tell you that in the palace, there's a throne room, and in the palace, there are all these jewels. There's a treasury in the palace, and in the palace, there's the most amazing kitchen, and that amazing kitchen has a nightly, preps a nightly feast, and there's a nightly feast in the palace, and all of that, again, that might sound interesting, right? But what if someone tells you that you were stolen from birth, that actually you are that king's child, right? You've been stolen, you're a prince, you're a princess. All of a sudden, hearing about that palace becomes more meaningful to you. Because whose palace is that? That's your palace, right? So what goes on in that amazing kitchen? That belongs to you. Those treasures, those are your treasures. That throne room is your throne room. That's your palace. It's your inheritance. And all of a sudden, that, that, that someone talking about a palace becomes much more meaningful. And that's kind of what understanding union with Christ is. It's what being in him means. And it's not a secret. God wants you to know the riches of being united with Christ. He wants this, this, this treasury to be refreshing to you to be your identity, to be, I was going to think, is it the biggest fact in your life? Maybe. Maybe. When I think about the way that Paul writes, in him summarized everything. Right? Like that is how he lives life. Life is in Christ. And so we're just going to see a, a beginning of that. It's bigger than your salvation, but it includes your salvation. And now let's read the quotes there in your notes. And if you didn't grab them, it's fine. They are on the tables outside. Just grab one on your way out. And here's a quote by, by, by a theologian named John Frame. And he talks about this union with Christ, being in Christ. He says it's an exceedingly broad topic. We will see that it underlies all the work of God in our lives. And that is, is so profound. I guess I want it just to sink in. But I don't think we're going to appreciate it until we spend more time with it. I'm still like a baby appreciating it. Right? 
it underlies all, all the work of God in our lives. Maybe we'll come back to that at the end of the series. Someone should remind me to come back to that because I probably won't. But all the work of God in our lives. And, and then he lists some. Election, calling, regeneration, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. All of those are in Christ. And if you don't know what all those words mean, we're going to learn over the upcoming months. All of these blessings are in Christ. To study union with Christ is to explore all of these particular blessings, and therefore the vast range of meaning of this little word in. And so all of those blessings are united to this concept of being united in Christ, of being in Christ. Now, uh, John Murray writes, Union with Christ is a central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's a central truth. And then he's going to use all to refer to salvation, to refer to all the blessings we have in Christ. So I wanted to tell you what this all is, because he kind of staggers it at the end, but this is a cool sentence. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. So everything that God's people have been predestined for is summed up in Christ. All that has been secured and procured for them in the once-for-all accomplishment of redemption. Everything, all the blessings we have of Jesus' death and resurrection are, are ours in Christ, secured and procured. All of which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption. The way that we actually get these applied to ourselves. It is in Christ. All that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. So everything that you have that is good as a believer, election, Jesus' death and resurrection, our being united to his death and resurrection, our forgiveness, our righteousness, our justification, our sanctification, our perseverance, our glorification, our eternity is because of being in Christ. So this is an important doctrine. Union with Christ is fundamental. It's huge. We actually know a whole lot about it, just maybe haven't focused on it a ton in these two words, in Christ. Although I hope that you go and read some of Paul. Because I hope that as you do it, you're just going to be excited just as it is popping just all over the place there. So, in, so as we talk about the, the, the importance of this doctrine, imagine for a minute that Bill Gates sends you an email that he wants to add your name to his bank account. Okay, he wants to add your name to his bank account. He's going to get all of his checks reprinted so that your name is under his. So it says Bill Gates, and then right under his name, go ahead and put your name. He's going to get you your, your, your own bank card so you can go to the ATM and draw from his bank account. What he has access to suddenly belongs to you. So would you worry about your finances? No. Would you ever think about money again? I mean, you might a little bit, you know, like after a while, like, ah, it's kind of expensive. And you're like, wait, I like literally have billions, right? And then you're like, I could spend this. And by the time I spend it, I also, my interest has already covered it, right? Money would become this thing that you just enjoy. 
or you don't even think about it. You just spend to get what you want. Now, imagine I told you that actually you've been, your name has been on his checks for the last 20 years, but you didn't know it. Now, that's kind of a little bit of what I hope this series is like for you, right? So, so liberating, so encouraging, so thrilling, and maybe makes you wonder a little bit, what have I been worried about? I keep worrying about whether Christ is going to accept me, whether I'm welcomed in the Father's presence, keep questioning God's goodness to me. I keep questioning whether he, he is really big-hearted towards me. But I've been in Christ since I was saved. We're going to see, too, probably not this week, you've been in Christ to some extent, in some way, before creation. So just think about that analogy there. Right? Your name on Bill Gates' bank account, you wouldn't worry. Right? You would have such freedom, probably a lot of joy, at least until you realize that money doesn't buy you what being in Christ does. So um, um, let's see here. Yeah, so, so this, this, this doctrine is really going to be about you having enjoying God more, having more security before God, more assurance of your salvation because of how tied to Jesus Christ it is. Michael Barrett writes, Union with Christ is our security in the gospel. I don't think I put that quote down. Union with Christ is our security in the gospel. That's such a key idea. Um, I'm going to say it, and then hopefully it just becomes increasingly clear to you the more time we spend with this. See, our, 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 our security, our confidence before God is not our faith. It's not, I believe in Jesus. That is not our confidence. Right? That is how we are connected to Christ. That is just the tool that God uses to connect us to Christ. Our confidence is not, well, I believe. Our confidence is God has used faith to bring me to Jesus Christ. A great book about that is, uh, is All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. If you had not already read it, read it for the rest of your life. Just start now and keep reading through it. It is like the best book ever written besides the Bible, I think. Okay. Um, so our, our faith is just what brings us to, to, to Christ. And then I've got another quote here by, by Michael Barrett. God deals with us only and always in terms of Christ. That is amazing, right? God deals, all of God's dealings with you after salvation, and, and to a way before, but after salvation is in Christ, and then he says, what is true about Christ is true for those in Christ. Now, he doesn't mean everything that is true about Christ, right? We know that Jesus, as the God-man, uh, is, has infinite power and infinite wisdom and infinite... Well, all those things aren't true of you. But as far as God's relationship to his son, his love for his son, his welcome of his son 
his, his acceptance of his son, the joy that he has in his son. What is true about Christ is true for those in Christ. So hopefully, as we see more of what that term is impact, what, as we unfold that term, it'll just lead to more and more joy to you. And again, this is the kind of thing that I'm glad I'm giving to you on this piece of paper because you can keep going back to it again and again. I, I could quote that at the beginning of each time. So we're going to try to explore a, a little bit more here. Um, oh, no, wait. Oh, hold on. Uh, sorry. Uh, I jumped ahead. Um, please wait. Sorry. I don't mean to be bossy. Um, so those who are in Christ can be encouraged. There is no outside of Christ for God's child. If you have been saved, you will never be outside of Christ. He will never imagine you apart from Christ. Never. That is unimaginable for him. There, the, you, you are inseparable from Christ in God's heart. Just the freedom that that brings, the joy that that could bring as we meditate on that. You can't slip from union with Christ to separate from Christ. So this is just such a, uh, um, a doctrine that can bring assurance. So you can't make yourselves more in Christ by working harder or by doing more. If you are in Christ, you are as in Christ as you will ever be. You will never be less in Christ. You are totally in Christ for all eternity. When we work hard, it's because we are in Christ. So listen to what Paul says. So, so when we work hard, it's not to make ourselves more acceptable to God. It's not to get ourselves in Christ. But it's because we are in Christ, we work hard. So this kind of stuff is just so, so core to how Paul sees the Christian faith. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.10. And we are still in that first uh, point of, or, or the second point there in your notes of just uh, of being, being introduced to the topic. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Incredible, right? It's God's grace with me. Where is that grace? That is, that is grace in Christ. We work hard because of being in Christ. Now, we want to, to, to kind of start spending some time on what does it mean to be united to, to Christ. And so we're going to look at some aspects of that union with Christ. And there's really no right, right way to organize this. Um, Paul has 160 verses. We're not going to look at all of them. John, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John are just full of this kind of language of being united to Christ. So we're going to look first at, at, at united to Christ re, uh, rep, representatively. United to Christ representatively. Now, it is incredible how God made humans. Because while we are individuals and we have an individual responsibility... God made humans to be represented. And we were represented in the garden by Adam. God appointed Adam to be the representative of humanity. 
And so when Adam sinned, Scripture teaches, as our, as our representative, that we sinned in him. With his sin, we all died. He was our representative, and when he sinned, in him we all sinned, and we all became sinners. And we'll look at some verses here. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die. So this idea of union with Christ is beautiful. We love this idea of being united with Christ. This idea of being united with Adam is a little less thrilling, right? We were in Adam. Now, it's good news for us because, because we were in Adam. We can also be in Christ. But we were in Adam, and in Adam, every human died. Romans 5.12. And Romans 5.12 and 19 is a key passage. Uh, uh, if you have your Bibles or you're scrolling on your phone, we'll, 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 we'll be in Romans 5 for a little bit. Romans 5.12 describes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is Adam, right? We're, we're, we're not surprised by that. We know that Adam sinned, and sin came into the world through Adam, and death through sin. Again, not surprised by that. And But here in Romans 5.12, And so death spread to all men because all sin. We're like, whoa. Okay, and that has to do with Adam being our, our head, our representative. Romans 5.15 describes this more. If many died through one man's trespass, the many all have died through one man's sin. Romans 5.17, it goes further. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Adam was our representative, and death spread to all people. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, we are all guilty, we are all judged, we are all condemned because of this representation by Adam. Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So when Adam fell, humanity fell. That might sound like a raw deal to you. Don't worry, you've only done what you've wanted, really, ultimately, right? And that is how deep sins the fall is, is that corrupted human nature so that we all have done what we wanted. We wanted sin. Now, if you're a new creature in Christ, you don't want sin anymore. But before you were a new creature, you wanted sin. You might have hated the consequences of it. You might have hated the guilt of it. But sin was what you wanted. Now, this is, in a sense, bad news, right? We had one representative, and because of Adam's sin, all humanity was cursed. We all died. We all became sinners. Pretty clear that humanity needed a new representative, right? There needed to be a new representative, and praise the Lord that there was a representative, because Adam represented humanity and God's plan, this is what it means to be made in God's image somehow. I, I would have to think that that's true. It's being part of being made to God's image to be represented. I'm not sure. But it is how he designed us. So humanity needed a new representative, and God gave us one. And this was in the eternal. So we're going to talk some about God's eternal purpose in bringing us in Christ. But if you think about this for a minute. It's pretty wild. So God made us in his image, right? Adam was made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were made in God's image. Adam fell and humanity fell. How is God going to redeem 
humanity. So we need a new representative. But this was not a backup plan for God. So like Jesus was able to be, God the Son was able to become man because man had been made in the image of God. Okay? God the Son was able to become man because man was made in the image of God. Could God the Son have become a cow? Even just saying that, shocking, right? Like, like I just got looks, like, what are you saying? We know that that's impossible, right? Because cows are not made in the image of God. God could never unite with anything that was not made in his image. So that's incredibly, you know, incre- it's just going back in, in God's mind, in his eternal plan to unite all things in Christ. He makes man in his image. Man falls, and then God the Son unites himself with humanity as the new Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now those are all of those who are in Christ. But that is great news for us in this representation. In Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Romans 5.14 it says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. It was always in God's plan that there would be a new Adam. So we could go further and uh, look at Romans 5. In Romans 5 again, I'll start at Romans 5.16. For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, of Adam's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses of humans, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, so because of Adam's trespass, his breaking God's command, death reigned, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So by the one man's obedience, they will be made righteous. Righteous. So because of God's plan that humanity be represented by a man, Adam, and Adam is a type of the man to come, we can be represented by the new Adam, Christ. Michael Barrett writes, It was a just thing for God to condemn us in Adam because he was the head of the human race. And then he continues, it is a just thing for God to justify us in Christ because he is the head of the redeemed race. That is incredible. God could only do that by God the Son becoming man. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ is our representative. Christ stands as our legal representative before God. When God sees Christ, he sees us. So before, when he, in a sense, saw Adam, he saw all of us, and we were all condemned. But when we put our faith in Christ, when God sees Christ, he sees all of those who are in Christ. He doesn't see condemnation, 
but righteousness. And that is how we can be justified, and we'll spend more time hopefully making that concept simple. So we are united to Christ as a representative. We are also united to Christ mystically. And you're like, wow, if that is not mystical, what does mystical mean? And mystical, it just means, and I think I'm quoting John Murray here, it's a spiritual truth that surpasses human, human comprehension because of the transcendence of its nature and significance. Basically, it's mystical because it's really hard to wrap our minds around. Okay? We're going to talk about being united to Christ in a way that is very difficult to speak about. It's why Paul says again and again, in him, in Christ. It's a relationship that's, that's difficult to understand because it's one that, apart from this, we don't experience. Right? A union doesn't put you into a person. A union groups you with a bunch of people and then you represent some, some, someone. Marriage makes two people one in a mystical way. Not like this. So this goes even further than than us being represented by Christ. So that is what it is to have Christ as our head is to be represented by him. It goes even further than this. It goes even further than having Christ present with us. Like Matthew 28, verse 20 describes, Behold, I'm with you always. This being united to Christ mystically goes even further than Christ's presence. It's not just, and it's not just that he's with us. It's that we are in Christ and that even Christ is in us. We are in Christ and that Christ is in us. Listen to John 14, 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Jesus is speaking. I am in my Father. So what's incredible here, really, Jesus' relationship of union with the Father is a little bit, it's almost like a picture of our union with Christ. Now, it also kind of blows the mind because what does that mean, right? What does it mean for the eternal three persons in the Godhead to be united? Separate persons, but one God. I can't understand that, right? Okay, so Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, so I have this eternal relationship with the Father, three persons as one. And then Jesus says, And you in me, and I in you. Jesus is in believers, and the believers are in him. Now, that's okay to think about that as represented, but that's only part of that truth, right? This goes further than that truth, and that's why we go from thinking about being united to Christ representatively to being united with Christ mystically. It goes even further than just representative. It's not just he representing us. This is Further than that, and I'm just going to say further than that because I don't have anything better than that. Um, Ephesians 5, 31 to, to, to 32, uh, Paul is instructing um, marriage, uh, husband and wives in their relationship with, with one another. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. So there's some of that uh, union picture there in marriage. Two becoming one. He's saying Christ and his people are united. They become one. Colossians 1, 26 to 27 says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to God's people. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory, the certainty of glory, the confidence of glory. How do you know that you're going to be glorified? What is your confidence that you're going to spend eternity with God perfectly pleasing to him? It is Christ in you. Now, this mystical union is the work of God's Spirit. And so we could say it's a spiritual union. It's the work of God's Spirit. It's through God's Spirit that we're united to Christ. It's not our work. It's not anything that we do. This is God's Spirit uniting you with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks, talks about this union. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When we are saved, we are united by God's spirit into Christ. We are united, all of us, in one body, but into Christ. That is the work of God's spirit. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 talks about this. Um, Romans 8, 9 and 10, you, your, if your Bibles are already open to Romans 5, go ahead and flip over to Romans 8, 9 and 10. Um, there's some amazing truth here about the Trinity. But we're going to see that this, this is just huge. These are some of the verses that just like make you to say, I understand God, but I don't understand God. Romans 8, 9, and 10. So, Paul's, so Romans 8 is a very encouraging chapter describing the difference between someone who, really, someone who is in Christ and someone who's not in Christ. And the presence of the Spirit, God's Spirit, makes someone different who is in Christ, and, and they live differently than someone who does not have God's Spirit. So someone who doesn't have God's Spirit, who's not saved, is described as in the flesh. And he says in Romans 8, 9, You, however, believers, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So there's more of that language. Not only are we in Christ, but we are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So God's spirit dwells in you. You are in the spirit. The spirit dwells in you. I think used to this idea of God's spirit dwelling with us, that God makes his presence with us through his spirit. And I think that the uh, Roots students talked about these verses on Friday night. Uh, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, now he's talking about the spirit. And here we just see that the spirit is the spirit of Christ. But then look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Wait, who did he just say was in you? In The spirit, right? But now in verse 10, who does he say is in you? Christ. And how does he describe the spirit in the second half of verse 9? The spirit of Christ. I don't even understand that. Right? And really, you could look at verses that talk about God's Spirit being in you, about Christ being in you, and even the Father being in you. So through the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Christ is in you. So if you have God's Spirit in you, because you, you are a new believer, Christ is in you. That's why we use the word mystical. I don't even know what the word mystical means, right? Something that's true, but it's not explainable. It's not understandable. I can't understand this. God is in you. Christ is in you through his spirit being in you. We see more of this language in 1 John 3.24. Now, I do have to, before, before we look at that, I want it to be encouraging, right? Because you might be like, what does this matter? And remember, we want to keep coming back to, this has to do with your certainty and with your assurance. 
and with your welcome before God. So no matter if you are a true believer, if Christ is in you, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how much you've failed, no matter how much you know you should bring a better offering than you currently are, right? Your confidence before him is that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. Right. Uh, 1 John 3, 24 says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. So that abiding language is this being in Christ. Abides in God, and God is in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by this spirit whom he, have, whom he has given us. How does God dwell in us? How does Christ dwell in us? Through his spirit he's given us. So if you have God's spirit, if you are a believer, if you've been saved, you have Christ in you. So John, John Murray writes, Christ dwells in us if his spirit dwells in us, and he dwells in us by his spirit. Christ dwells on, in us if his spirit dwells in you, and he dwells in us by his spirit. This is an unbreakable work of God, right? He dwells in you through his spirit you are his temple that does not go away. That's incredible. You are the forever dwelling of God by his spirit abiding in you. Now, that is a portion of this work. So there's a spiritual union where the work of God's spirit unites us to Christ. I don't know. We didn't look at all those verses. But it's a spiritual union. Part, well, it's a letter C, but part B of this spiritual union. It's also the work of God's Spirit uniting you to the work of God's Son. So I hope this is cool to you. I hope that you look at these verses and go away later and say, wow, my name is written on a lot of checks, right? Because this is what this is about. This is about you realizing how amazing your salvation is. So this God's Spirit just doesn't unite us to Christ. God's Spirit unites us to the work of God's Son. And so we see that we have union with Christ in his death. That we have been united in Christ with his death. With, with, with his death. So being, uh, and uh, here's a quote from someone. I don't know who is, is here. I think it's Michael Barrett. Being in union with Christ means that every believer jointly participates in the work of the Lord Jesus. Now, I wouldn't go so far as this means to say that you did the miracles of Jesus, right? Uh, really, Scripture focuses on his death, on his resurrection, but even his sitting in God's presence right now, even in his reign. That's pretty wild. Okay, but let's start looking at this. So when Jesus accomplished redemption, believers were in him. You were united to him. You participated in him. So let's look at some verses about being united with Christ in his death. One of the, an awesome one here is Galatians 2.20. You can flip over there if you want. Scroll whatever your little fingers do. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How were you crucified with Christ? So when you were a baby, 
when you were five, and I don't know what point you were saved, but were you crucified with Christ? No, there was a point in your life before salvation in which you were not crucified with Christ. Now, we're going to look and say there's also a way from God's mind you were crucified with Christ, but in your experience of salvation, you had to be united with Christ, and that is the work of God's Spirit. So that past tense, you have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. You're you, the version of you, Isaiah 1.0, died. And there is a new me, and it's not even me living anymore. I am so unified with Christ that the new Isaiah 1.0 is like Jesus 1.0 and 2.0, both before him in his death and in his resurrection. That doesn't make any sense. But we're dealing with things that are very difficult to understand here, right? It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So does it really matter what slice of pizza I get? Doesn't that seem so mundane, right? This new life is, is his life. It's not my life. I died with him, right? That life is like water under the bridge life. That, that life is a, is a buried life. It's a dead life. Uh, Romans 6, 4 says that. There, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in, into death. So baptism pictures it. Whether he's talking about water baptism there or spirit baptism is how we get united to this. We were there, we were buried therefore with him. Our lives are over. When you become a Christian, you're, you've, you've died, you've been buried. 2 Corinthians 5.14, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. It's not just me being united with Christ. If you are a believer, all of you have died with him. And whose life do we currently live? It's not my life I live. It's not your life you live. We live his life. This is why it's so cool that we have a representative, right? It's good in God's plan that Adam represented us, although tragic. And it's good in God's plan that Christ represents us, right? Because of this wonderful thing that God made humanity to be corporate in a way, when Jesus died I'm able to be free of my life, to be free of the first life. So because of his death, justice has been served. Because of his death, and that's what we're going to celebrate with the Lord's Supper this, 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 this afternoon, there's no more offense to be paid. Because of his death, we can receive pardon. Because of his death, we are freed from sin's dominion. You are no longer under Sin, you're no longer under law. We are freed from the burden of sin. We have security. We have certainty because everything we dreaded has passed. Now, this also, being dead, gives us motivation. And I've already talked about that. You can't not talk about it. There's power for, 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 for living. Colossians 3.3. 3. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've died. Your first life, when you believe, your first life is so over. You would not go out to the corpse buried and say, what do you want in your coffee? I don't know. Whatever you would say to the corpse that's buried. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter what he wants to watch on TV, what he wants to do with his body. Right? It doesn't matter to him what people think of him. Right? All of that is past. 
You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. All of those passions and, 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 and lust and coveting and pride. We want to get rid of all of that because it's dead. We do not care what the body in the ground wants. And neither we should care what our old flesh wants except to say no to it. I'm getting preachy. I don't mean to do that. Really, so I, I, I do intend this to keep building some of our past strengths of question and asking. It's a little bit more difficult, I think, if uh, um, we are not all reading, but we're going to keep working towards that. Um, Romans 6, 6. And these verses are there, so you can look them up later uh, um, and enjoy them this week. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, right? When he died, we died with him. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may, might be brought to nothing. Right? It, it is brought to nothing. It has no more influence. Yes, there's influence, but it has no power. We don't have to listen so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's good news. In God's mind. Oh, so now this is going to like get into a little bit of being timeless. And we're going to talk more about that. But in God's mind, every one of the elect died with Christ. Right? Every one of us who are saved died with Christ. That's incredible. Right? He, so in a sense, we're living our lives, and God in eternity, while we rebel against him, while we take war against him, knows where this is going, and he's patient with us. Right? We're shaking our fists at him, but he knows, no, when Christ died, they died. But we're not experiencing that yet. And then we believe, and all of a sudden, we live. That, that's, that's thrilling. Um, and that's where this goes next. Union with Christ in his, in his resurrection. We'll probably have to come back to this next time. You can see I, 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 uh, where we're going to go. But we're united to Christ in his resurrection. Ephesians 2, uh, 5 and 6 says, So, when Christ rose from the dead, we rose from the dead with him. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that kind of jumps ahead to being united to Christ in his reign. We, when we believe in Christ, we are made alive together with Christ. It's, it's his life. I wish we could, I don't have a better analogy. It's his heart beating in our chest, right? It's his blood pumping through us. It's his soul. Yeah, but I know that we still have our soul, right? We're, we're, we're new. We are in him. This is why it's so wonderful we can be represented. Colossians 2, 12 through 13 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So that's so cool. Colossians 2.12, listen to that. In which you also you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And that's a good place to end. How were you raised? Through faith in the powerful working of God. How did you come to salvation? Through faith in the powerful working of God. Your faith, your believing in Christ is the means that God uses to unite you to Christ. That work that was done 2,000 years ago 
And that was decided upon in eternity past. So saints, this is what we're going to keep coming back to. You don't have to fear. Right? If you are in Christ, you don't have to fear being rejected. Right? You are welcome in his presence in Christ. It's wonderful. Um, if you are not saved yet, I want to talk to you more about this, but you've already seen how you're saved. You make it to Christ. Make it to Christ. Run to Christ. Believe in Christ. And you know what? Christ wants you to come to him. He invites you today. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites you to come to him. You make it to Christ through faith, and all of these blessings are yours. He is your representative. Your, 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 the death you've died is in him. The life you live is in him. And we'll see a little bit next week. We're going to reign with him, and we're going to look at some word pictures of our union with him. And then we're going to get a little bit into the eternal mind of God and see that this was always his plan. So this is probably first and second week we're going to talk about union with Christ. And then we're going to go through all of those blessings we uh, talked about, about, about our election and our calling and regeneration and faith and justification and adoption and sanctification and perseverance and glorification so that you have lots of joy. Okay? I'm going to close in prayer and then we can greet one another. Oh, Father, I thank you that this is a communion Sunday. I thank you that Jesus is coming back. I thank you that Jesus is alive now. I thank you that he is reigning at your right hand. And I thank you that you had a plan um, that even when you made man in your image, that your eternal plan was that your son would take on your image as man to himself so that he could be a representative. This is too wonderful, Lord, and uh, we don't have words for this. I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters in this upcoming uh, week with this certainty, Lord. And, and, and I do pray, Father, for those who aren't sure if that they are in Christ. Um, may, may this doubt, um, may they deal with it. Lord, may they pray about it. May they get counsel about it. May they have certainty um, in this upcoming week. May they go to Christ in faith uh, so that they would have certainty that when Christ died, they died. And when Christ rose, they rose. And when Christ is at your right hand, we are at your right hand. May they have that same faith. Help us to live accordingly, dead to sin and alive to you. Uh, help us to so love this phrase in him like, like Paul did. In Jesus' name, amen.